Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Joseph R. Mashi. He's a doctor. He's a clinical professor in three areas, medicine and infectious diseases, environmental medicine and public health, and global health. Uh, He's at Mount Sinai. Uh, He also has a lot of uh, clinical expertise in HIV and AIDS diagnosis and treatment, general infectious diseases, tropical medicine, and emergency preparedness. Um, This call is, uh, he's going to be one of the co-authors in a virus book that I'm going to be putting out, um, hopefully end of October, early November. And the reason I had it, he has a lot of clinical experience, which uh, will give interesting perspectives on, you know, viruses and their actions and all that, because he sees them inside of people in the clinic. So, Joseph, thanks for coming. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. Just a, a brief background on you. What got you into the, the area of research that you do? And, you know, uh, give me a little bit of detail. Uh, well, when I was in medical school, I was very inspired by the infectious diseases division there and by the people who worked in it. And um, then after I finished my residency in medicine, I decided to do a fellowship in infectious diseases. And that was right at the beginning of the um, the uh, HIV AIDS uh, epidemic. I came to um, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, New York, and uh, we many, many patients coming to us at that point. The AIDS program developed as it did at a lot of places over the next few years. And then as the time went by, other things became uh, also very important. Um, after uh, the 9-11 attack, there was concern about bioterrorism, and I got uh, focused on looking for um, strategies to uh, detect and prevent bioterrorism. And then um, with uh, Ebola, um, we uh, had the only Ebola patient in New York was at Bellevue Hospital. And um, I uh, became very interested in Ebola and I was an advisor to the city hospital system on that. And now, of course, most recently with um, COVID-19, this pandemic, which came as something of a surprise, maybe not a total surprise, um, this has been a major, major uh, impact uh, in New York City, certainly early in the epidemic, and now, of course, all over the country and all over the world. So uh, I'm very um, focused now on uh, planning for um, the response and looking at treatment and prevention of COVID. Yeah, I'll have to have you back sometime soon to talk about uh, your work with COVID, but this will be a more of a, a general treatment of viruses, but uh, sure. it sounds very interesting. Um, uh, okay, so now to the, the questions. First question, uh, to your knowledge, uh, I mean, to your belief, uh, viruses alive, why or why not? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and um, there, there is a mixed opinion on that, I think. They, they certainly share a lot of qualities with other living organisms. They reproduce with either RNA or DNA. Um, they have uh, uh, a capsule around the RNA and DNA that looks a little bit like the way a cell is structured. Um, but of course, the reason why they're not considered alive by everybody is they cannot survive independently. They have to live within cells, though even that is a little bit, um, I would think, uh, debatable at this point, whether viruses always have to be within cells. But that's certainly generally the uh, the thought. I think the um, 
you know, the debate is getting less and less critical as we learn more and more about viruses and the distinction alive, not alive, uh, may not matter as much as it once thought it would. True. Yeah. Well, if you consider um, a tree and a seed, you know, a tree, uh, I guess, would be inarguably alive. Is the seed alive? You know, the seed is just, a, I guess, perhaps a stage of the of the tree where it's not actively alive, it's dormant, but uh, it leads to a living thing and it needs soil and sun, et cetera, to, uh, to grow and, you know, to, to become fully what it is. And I guess maybe there's, there's also argument about uh, people, you know, at conception, is the uh, fetus alive? And there's been debate around that. So it's an open question. I just wanted to hear your thoughts, but, but thank you. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so next question I have for you, uh, some viruses seem to have a latency period. They'll go into somebody and, you know, nothing will happen for a day, two days, five days, 10 days, 14, who knows. Why do you think there's this latency period? Do you think it's just that there's not enough cells infected or do you think there's other things going on signaling like a quorum sensing where the, the virus is somehow sensing, okay, the time is right? Yeah, of course, um, viral illnesses come in many, many different um, categories and um, sequences like you're talking about. HIV virus, of course, is active with lots of virus in the body for decades before clinical illness typically presents. And common cold viruses, of course, it's much quicker than that. Flu virus is much quicker than that, a day or two. So um, the, the why to that, um, you know, some of that is, uh, I guess, somewhat philosophical, but um, I think there are certain types of viruses that are destined to cause um, disease quickly um, because they can't last very long in the body. Uh, and then there are other viruses that can last a long time. HIV is a good example of that because it can uh, reverse transcribe its RNA and stay silent in the host DNA for many, many years. Whereas other RNA viruses in particular that don't have that retroviral pathway uh, generally don't last very long and uh, you know can't produce a sustained infection like that. But there are many examples in the middle. Um, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, these are chronic RNA virus infections. They certainly last for a long time. Uh, on the other hand, there's um, herpes simplex, which can uh, go from one stage to the other and then back again. It can produce a very um, active eruptive phase where you get vesicles and cells are destroyed. Then it can remain dormant uh, and typically does remain dormant often for many years, and then it can recur later in life again uh, with uh, localized in, uh, outbreak like shingles, and that can, um, uh, it, shingles is a different virus, but let's say uh, another eruption in a typical herpes simplex location, a genital uh, location or around the lips can occur again um, as the um, immune defense weakens over time. So there are viruses in all different uh, categories in, in terms of chronicity, those that act quickly and are gone quickly, those that act uh, very, very, very slowly, and those that act um, quickly are then quiet, but remain in the body and then can reactivate. Of course, COVID um, is something we're learning a lot about, COVID-19. It seems to um, act quickly. It seems to not remain uh, a replicating virus in the body for more than a few weeks. Um, but as I say, we're learning more and more about it every day. Well, when you look at herpes simplex, when you look at HIV, you know, uh, for HIV, has anyone been able to do a longitudinal study where they've found someone that they believe was infected, and even though they had no symptomology, they tested them, the person felt fine, and then they followed that person longitudinally for months or years and looked at the nature of the virus that was in them, 
you know, the viral load, how that changed, um, maybe even sequenced it over time to get a longitudinal look at, you know, perhaps what was the virus doing in them for months and years? Well, yeah, I think that's been done. Um, and there's certainly people who acquire HIV and have um, really minimal symptoms and occasionally no symptoms at all during the acute phase of the illness. The virus is easily detectable often uh, within the first um, couple of months of infection and then can become less detectable as it uh, settles into these cellular sites all over the body uh, and then reactivates later uh, in life as the um, immune system degrades. Now, whether or not there are different strains of HIV accounting for different natural history pattern is not really 100% clear yet. It's a virus that does not seem to uh, require a large inoculum initially to cause infection. So it's that bottleneck um, uh, feature that some other viral infections have where a large amount of virus can cause infection by going through a narrow bottleneck. So only a few subtypes maybe of the virus are getting in. But, you know, I think the answer to your question right now is largely speculative. What is the difference in the various HIV strains in terms of their ability to produce um, uh, abrupt and rapidly progressive HIV infection and AIDS or much more slow infection? We just don't know the answer to that. It seems to be more host dependent. Uh, and that is, um, for example, young children uh, may often progress to symptomatic HIV infection in a shorter period of time than adults maybe because their immune system isn't quite capable of handling the infection yet. So that's a long-winded attempt to answer your question. Uh, I don't know that it really fully answers it, but I don't know that the answer really is fully known yet. Well, what is some of your speculation? Do you think that the virus, it's inside cells, and is it maybe able to co-opt cellular machinery and signaling, and through cell-to-cell -cell signaling, you know, directed by the virus, perhaps it's able to know, hmm, okay, there's a... 1.6 billion other cells that are infected with a, a strain similar to me, and let's coordinate action. Do you think it's able to do that? Or even within one cell, is it able to monitor its external environment and decide its action based on yeah. conditions? Well, I think what you're describing is certainly a, a feature that's now been associated with, um, with viral infections in general, that they can uh, signal each other, that they can work cooperatively, that they can uh, seem to wait until certain um, conditions are met before they uh, destroy a cell. Whether that is true with HIV is hard to be certain. Um, uh, and I, I think it probably is. I think there are, uh, there's enough that we know about the natural history of HIV that suggests something like that may be happening. But with such a slowly evolving virus, it's hard to draw firm conclusions. It's a little easier when you have um, non-retroviruses, other RNA viruses that um, seem to uh, mutate quickly, form uh, sort of uh, networks of related viruses that can then collectively attack um, and uh, seem to be able to communicate with each other, um, biochemically, of course, uh, to time the attack in accordance with what the target cell is doing. Um, and as far as I know, that's pretty much what our underst understanding uh, sits at right now. I don't know that there are terrific, um, let's say, uh, molecular examples to uh, demonstrate that, but... Yeah, no, no problem. Well, again, this is great that you're, you're such a, a clinician because I can get this perspective from you. So if, um, if a virus is out there, you know, whatever, virus X, someone has it, I'll call them number one, and then someone else gets infected from them, I call them number two, and someone else gets infected from them, and they're number three, and it passages through 
one, two, three, five, 10, 15, 20 people. Have you observed, have you been able to observe this clinically? You know, AIDS gets passed from mother to son and then on again, or, you know, again, uh, herpes or whatever. And if so, in looking at passaging through multiple people, do viruses tend to change dramatically? Do they become to be, uh, do they become less virulent, more commensal? Any observations there? I think, you know, the, the scenario you describe is something that we've seen many times with HIV infection. And I would, um, I'm stuck with my previous answer. We really don't know what happens to the severity of HIV infection in any clear-cut way. It doesn't seem to change as the virus gets passed along from host to host to host. Um, I think there are indications that um, recurrent viral infections may be milder under some circumstances, um, that, but there are also so-called enhancing antibodies that occur with other viruses, for example, dengue. If you get infected serially with the different subtypes, you get worse and worse infection rather than milder and milder. Um, I think if you have um, had measles, you don't get measles again. I, I think if you have had, um, uh, you know, pertussis, you're not going to get that again once you've been vaccinated. So there are many different patterns to this. And uh, I think we have to be careful not to lump all viruses together as behaving one way or another way. It's an incredibly diverse um, group of uh, organisms that probably evolved in a variety of different ways and may have little to do with each other. The DNA viruses with their stable DNA versus the single-strand RNA viruses which with their rapidly uh, changing RNA pattern. I think sometimes it's um, we're premature in trying to assign specific patterns to all viruses when we have to regard them as really very, very distinct uh, entities. Well, even within that, um, so there are some patterns where the virus just is is um, is deadly. It just remains that way. It seems to be after passaging. There's some that perhaps um, go as far to instantiate themselves in your DNA, and maybe you you turn asymptomatic in future generations or through future passages and and everything in between. But I guess what you're saying is uh, there are all instances observed so far, right? Yeah, I think that as a general statement, that's true. If you take, for example, Epstein-Barr virus, it causes mononucleosis, it causes a variety of different malignancies, but in most people it causes nothing. It remains in the body for the entire uh, life of the individual. And in most people, it doesn't cause any clinical illness that we know about. But there are certain triggers, environmental or other co-infections perhaps in, other, in some people, that trigger progression of the viral illness with uh, its mitogenic potential, its tissue destructing, destroying potential, et cetera. So I, I think that the missing link in all of this is what are the host factors that are playing on the virus and what are the, the other factors of, um, that are being contributed to by other organisms that are colonizing the body. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What, what are the effects of bacteria and bacterial products on what these viruses do? What are other viruses doing to maybe help contain the viral infection? But the bottom line is what you just said, that there are a variety of different patterns that we see with viral infections. And it's really, to me, it's, it's soup to nuts. It's everything from an acute, really devastating infection, take smallpox, to a chronic, often completely asymptomatic infection that lasts for as long as the life of the patient, Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah, and I've talked to parasitologists, and the same thing happens with parasites. Bacteriologists, same thing happens with bacteria. You see all these behaviors. So at least to me, that, that 
puts viruses more squarely in the family of being alive. It's just yet another set of uh, attributes they have that uh, you know other microorganisms have. Fungi too. So it's interesting that this behavior is across all those different creatures. Yeah, I agree. Oh, very good. I, I really like this perspective so far. It's very different. Okay. Um, well, continuing on, uh, we talked about latency period. Oh, yeah, this one's kind of a puzzle to me. And again, it may not hold. Um, do you think of rabies? You know, it seems to be transmitted by biting and saliva. And it seems to affect uh, the tissues that cause the, the infected creature to bite another creature. So it seems paired. You know, the tissues that get infected, the rabies, seem to be also the ones that help it spread. And if you think of flu, uh, you know, the lung tissue, et cetera, is infected and the coughing and sneezing and droplets help it spread. So, I, again, it may not be universal, but uh, quite a few viruses, the mechanism of transmission appears to be paired with the tissues and cells that are affected. Yeah, Why do you think true. that might be? That's true. Also, the, uh, the um, actual construct of the virus dictates how it can enter the body. As um, you're probably aware, um, viruses that uh, have an envelope uh, can't survive the um, low pH of the stomach, so they can't enter the body through the gastrointestinal tract. Whereas viruses that don't have an envelope typically have a very firm uh, viral capsid, and they can survive the low pH of the stomach, and they can cause gastroenteritis, for example, uh, norovirus or rotavirus. Those are examples of viruses that don't have an envelope, whereas influenza virus uh, and uh, Many of the viruses that are transmitted sexually cannot survive that low pH, so they're transmitted most effectively in the respiratory tract or in the genital tract. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the viruses, uh, you know, it's a, which came first, um, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the lack of, a, of, a, of an envelope or the entry point that the virus was most favorably adapted to and the illness that was most um, likely to cause, um, it's a chicken and egg uh, you know, problem to me a little bit, but uh, you can really pretty much bet your bottom dollar that any virus that is surrounded by an envelope cannot cause a gastroenteritis. Uh, hmm. Whereas other viruses that are that that don't have an envelope are very able to survive the gastric pH. So, is this were these um, the mutations that the viruses developed over the eons in order to attack certain parts of various animals' bodies? Or were these the doorways into the body that viruses that happen to have those features were able to use? You know, one of the, not to go on and on about this, but one of the, I guess the big mysteries about viruses is did they predate cells uh, or did they all mm -hmm. come after cells? Was there I something was ask you that, yeah. viruses and cells uh, that um, accounted for some of this, these, you know, patterns? What's your thought uh, in answering that question? I was going to ask you that later, right? Which came first? And yeah, why? I, I think I, I don't know that there's been an answer to that uh, that's been agreed upon. I think um, it's tempting to, to think that virus that viruses came after cells because cells um, are infected by viruses, not the other way around. But uh, since viruses seem to have developed a very, very, very long time ago, whether they developed before cells and were able to survive uh, without an intracellular um, existence in some other way is not clear to us. I think there are examples of where viruses can live outside of cells in blood plasma, at least for a period of time. So was there a similar environment that allowed viruses, if you want to call them that, before they actually became parasites of cells because there weren't any cells yet, 
that allowed viruses in terms of replicating RNA strands to exist. Uh, I don't know. It's a fascinating argument. And since these organisms don't leave fossils, uh, I, I think it's going to remain pretty speculative what came first. But I think there's every reason to think that uh, to support either hypothesis, that either cells came first and viruses came along and started hitching a ride, or viruses came first, or there's a third hypothesis, and that's that neither one has to be the one that came first. They may have evolved separately and eventually met up with each other. Um, fascinating area. Well, um, interesting. In this vein, um, viruses uh, you know, are thought by most uh, to be pathogens, parasites, um, but they also have tools, and they also seem to be tools themselves. You know, for instance, bacteria will, will take different parts of a viral sequence and incorporate it and use it as part of their immunity. Right. Well, I've, you know, I've heard of an example of uh, bacteria um, using uh, a sequence for a spike protein and expressing it on their membrane and, you know, having their own spike protein and then puncturing other bacteria by using it. And then viruses themselves, you know, obviously they use the, the cells as tools. So they are a tool. They're used as tools. And same thing with cells. They, they use them as tools. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, any examples of that you know of, of viral-like abilities being co-opted by bacteria or eukaryotes or any other creature that I know, just amaze you? Well, yeah, you mentioned the spike protein um, that, you know, is now famous because of its uh, presence on COVID. I think um, there are examples of where human cells can develop spike proteins uh, that make them relatively resistant to infection by COVID. And it may account for the um, high rate of severe illness from COVID as we get older. We lose that ability to create spike proteins. And, you know, I think uh, there, there's probably a lot more to this that, than we currently know or that currently I understand, where there are um, molecular mimicry mechanisms at place, in play. There are certainly um, examples of where viruses seem to be very, very active in certain parts of the body where they seem to be perhaps protective of the uh, endogenous bacterial um, population. Uh, and, you know, I think there's, a, there's, at this point, it seems to me, there's more cooperation between viruses and bacteria than we realized there was 10 years ago. Uh, and it, it's going to be very interesting to see what comes of that, you know, going forward. Now, uh, there are also, in bacteria, many bacteria have the, the ability to give off extracellular vesicles. And um, these are called exosome. Uh, and they can be uh, used to transmit genetic information from one bacteria laterally to another. And this information can be helpful in uh, allowing cells to be, uh, to, to be able to recognize antigens, like viral antigens. So I think, you know, right now we have sort of a pinhole, at least from my perspective, into how these microorganisms may be interacting both to benefit each other in each direction, uh, and certainly to harm each other in each direction. Uh, we certainly know that viruses can kill bacteria, and we certainly know that bacteria, as you've mentioned, have genetic defenses against viral infection. Uh, and I think what may become more obvious is how these two very different-seeming populations of organisms can uh, actually be beneficial to each other. Yeah, amazing. Hmm. Um, you know, again, more <laughs> speculative questions. Um, I've seen viruses, some that look like moon landers, they have like a head and tail and tail fibers and a collar. Right. Others, you know, like SARS-CoV-2 look like round spiked balls, you know, with spike proteins that are cleaved and unfold and, and enter. 
But why do you think there is such huge variation in, in viruses and in, you know, I guess just like any other creature, then I mean, you have rod shaped, you have ball shaped, you sure. have yeah. different abilities and entries. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there, there's also tremendous difference in the size of the genome in viruses from very, very tiny to really quite substantial. You know, many, many, many um, uh, factor bigger genomes in one virus, is, one virus species than another. And I think to some degree, the size of the genome dictates the shape of the virus. I think there are certain shapes that are not, um, that are accommodate long, you know, uh, nucleotide um, strands that, uh, better than others do. Um, but, you know, this may also be just an indication that viruses didn't all emerge from one um, progenitor, that they came from a variety of different directions and a variety of different environments. And, you know, as I say, they certainly occur in a tremendous variety of sizes, particularly of their, um, their you know, their uh, RNA or DNA. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting observation uh, that they come in many shapes and sizes. I think, um, the typical sort of icosahedral shape uh, is kind of a, a standard shape that's often, you know, given for a virus. You know, I think flu viruses have that shape. But there are other viruses like Ebola and like COVID that don't have that seemingly rigid structural shape. And whether it's dictated by the size of the uh, genome or whether it's dictated by something else related to their environment, their metabolism, their ability to invade, I think... We just have to keep in mind, I think there are about 300 viruses that infect humans that we know about. And that is probably a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the total num number of viruses out there. So to uh, draw conclusions from what we know about may be a little bit treacherous. I also think there are a lot of viruses that we currently don't have any mean, any way of culturing, any way of looking at under an electron microscope so we can see what they look like, what their shape is. We only have the evidence of, them, of their transmission. Um, so I think there's a lot more coming on viral morphology and what it has to do with uh, pathogenesis. Yeah. Um, also, too, in terms of entry mechanism, you know, I've seen the uh, E. coli, uh, this, this moon lander looking virus, the tail fibers will brush against it, stick uh, the virus will be pulled to the surface, uh, its, its collar will change shape, you know, the opening of it, it'll kind of screw its way into the, the membrane and inject its payload. And then other ones, you know, have very different mechanisms. And, you know, I, I saw one that will grab onto the pillus of a bacteria. And when the pillus gets pulled into the bacteria, the, the virus is like its capsid is ripped off and it's pulled inside. Sure. So again, there's, there's so many different entry mechanisms uh, of viruses too. It's, uh, you know, again, where do you think that comes from? Do you, I guess the point I'm trying to get is a lot of people explain this as, random mutation and, you know, selection and things like that. But all this seems so sophisticated, so varied, so tailored. What, what's your speculation? Do you think that viruses and cells and bacteria, are, they have their own intelligence or at least awareness of self and other at some level? Yeah, I don't know if I would use either intelligence or awareness, but I, I think you're right that um, random seems to be uh, a gross exaggeration or an underestimate of how uh, well-engineered all of this is. I think there certainly is random interaction of, um, you know, viruses and bacteria and bacteria with other bacteria, viruses with other viruses. But the, what you what you referred to, uh, those examples of entry strategies of specific viruses into specific human or bacterial cells uh, really suggest a long-standing cooperative evolution uh, that is, uh, you know, really 
if there was a random event in the past that explains it, well, fine. But there's a lot of non-random evidence that we have now. You know, um, you know, particularly the um, the uh, elements in bacterial DNA that are um, that cause viral resistance uh, from those bacteria. Where did those elements actually come from? There's a lot that seems as though it it had to be something other than random. Now, when you get to something other than random in biology and in genetics, well, what exactly are we talking about? I think what you and I are both referring to is not a bunch of little particles bumping into each other, and that's what it all is. We're talking about uh, conditions that started as a bunch of different particles bumping into each other, but became a much more sophisticated means of bilateral recognition and uh, steps to accommodate structural features, et cetera, that allowed for the progression and forward moving of both viruses and, and bacteria. Hmm. Very good. Okay. Um, again, I've seen, well, I guess pick your own favorite mechanism of entry. It seems to be a lot of steps and uh, it's intricate. Do you think that if a, if a given virus was going to infect a cell, but the cell was denucleated, was missing some critical machinery, or it was just, you know, a, a membrane that was empty inside, but, you know, the outer membrane was had all the receptors and everything. Do you think that a viral entry, entry would pause because it sensed that, quote, unquote, something's wrong? Or do you think it would just go ahead and, you know, this kind of a structure would act as a trap for a, yeah. an unwary virus? I don't know. I think uh, there may be viruses that can sense that or somehow detect it biochemically. There may be viruses that cannot. Uh, if there is something to that as a therapeutic strategy, it's, you know, it's certainly interesting to look at that, it, it, it goes the other way in the sense that there are, um, that the formation of the viral uh, genetic material and the formation of the viral capsid are not always linked with each other. So you can have empty viral capsids floating around, that, that's certain. Uh, so whether you can have the opposite where you have an empty bacterial cell and the virus can somehow detect that it's empty, uh, I would not be surprised to find that under some circumstances, or maybe even most circumstances, that's true. But I don't know what the data is to support it one way or the other. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, in looking at, you know, you mentioned this uh, extracellular vesicles. You know, they, well, bacteria put out plasmids, eukaryotic cells, or at least our cells put out extracellular vesicles. Um, I don't know if viruses uh, modulate the EVs that are put out by cells, but when I look at extracellular vesicles themselves, this is what I mean about viral tools. You know, they, they're created by a cell, they leave it, they enter into other cells, they carry genetic material, they can alter the genetic expression of other cells, so they seem like viruses, but it seems like our cell's version of, of a virus, just like a plasmid is kind of like, like a virus, and you know, we want to take it even further. I, I think one of the key distinctions between a virus and a cell is that viruses can't generate their own energy. They don't make ATP, for example. So a virus is always going to be uh, stuck in its life cycle. It's virtually always going to require a cell in order to complete its path forward. Um, and and I, I think that the, the ability to produce energy may be the big distinction. Uh, I think the energy that a virus uses is, is essentially contributed entirely by the cell that it invades. But I, I don't know if I'm really getting right to the point of what you're asking or uh, not? Well, I, I just wonder if you think they're analogous enough that they could be a virus-like tool. You know, even, yeah, so EVs for a start, do you think that uh, there's anything about them that's close enough where you could 
maybe you can make the inference that hmm, they do seem to be virus-like. They're not exactly viruses, but it's just a thought that occurred. I just wanted to see your opinion on it. Uh, I don't know. I, I, you know, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, it makes me think of archaea, which are sort of like viruses. Their behavior and what they actually look like is pretty foggy to everybody at this point. They have only DNA in them. They don't have any RNA for some reasons. Uh, so are, are they an intermediate between what you know we regard as a virus and what we regard as a cell? Or are they somehow the answer to your question? Um, I think we don't know too much about how the, that um, group of organisms behaves to really understand how much of an intermediary they behave like. But um, it does, you know, make me wonder whether what you're saying may be true of archaea and maybe other similar types of entities that we haven't identified or classified. And then you talked about this before, but do you have any examples of, um, you know, I, I always pictured one, one virus, one cell, you know, one virus will fuse and enter into one cell. But do you think there are examples or are there of multiple viruses um, fusing to a cell and coordinating entry? Yeah. That being necessary? Yeah. I th well, necessary, I don't know, but I think it does happen. Um, and, you know, maybe the best example of that are the, the quasi species, these mutant clouds of RNA viruses that um, multiple viral viruses can infect a single cell. Uh, and the advantage of that, that mutant bundle of you know, slightly different viral you know, strains is that the virus that's most um, viable can then survive and can integrate. And I think that's been a major strategy, if you will, of RNA viruses to produce those what are called quasi-species like that, where it's one maybe dominant, uh, genetically dominant strain of a virus and many other closely related strains traveling as a group and uh, sometimes invading as a group the same hmm. cell. So, yeah, have you seen that viruses have a, a group identity? You know, like bacteria form biofilms. Um, again, it, any group identity behavior, even when, you know, only when inside cells, uh, are they able to, again, coordinate with other infected cells, like uh, like an alien sitting at a control panel on a spaceship, you know, a virus inside a cell? Do, you, do they seem to have any, again, this group identity? I think that's beginning to emerge as a uh, as a valid concept that even before they uh, invade a cell, they can somehow be connected to, to each other. There's ex there are examples of one viral strain that attacks a cell um, to weaken the cell wall, uh, and the initial virions involved in that attack uh, are eliminated. But then the subsequent virions come along, and they can then invade the cell, which where the cell wall has been damaged. I, I think that's an accepted um, uh, pathway that some viruses are capable of following. Um, I think viruses are probably involved in maintaining RNA fitness within cells. There, there's something, uh, you know, suspicious, if you will, of how uh, the nucleic acid composition of cells remains so consistent. Uh, generally, obviously, there are mutations, et cetera, but uh, how, you know, uh, species have been able to develop and maintain themselves. Do viruses have something to do with that? Do they maintain RNA fitness within cells to keep it from getting too chaotic? Wow. So I, I think viruses play different roles in this regard. They can help contain chaos, and they can also, uh, by chaos, uh, help to infect cells with that, uh, you know, that viral cloud quasi-species I was talking about. Yeah, I've heard of quasi-species or quasi-species. Um, 
when you were talking about this example of, of certain virions damaging a cell membrane and others entering, I thought about a colony of bees. You, know, you have drones and workers and et cetera. Do you think that viruses could exhibit a somewhat analogous structure where they have, I, I you know, the so. quasi species are like that? I think so. Whether there are different viral strains that do the initial attack, uh, you know, I think. Uh, my understanding of this concept is there are viral infections that don't require different strains. It's all one strain of the virus. The first wave, if you will, damages the cell walls. The second wave invades. Um, I I think it's a a fairly accepted hypothesis at this point. Uh, Exactly what the experimental proof of it, though, I I don't know. Maybe one of the virologists could uh, help with that. Yeah, that's amazing. Very, very interesting. Um, Have you seen examples where a a target cell is infected by a certain virus and the virus uh, changes the cell to keep out other viral infections, you know, like a dog guarding a bone. Well, that's interesting too. Uh, you know, you could, um, uh, let's see, how, how might we fit that into the, uh, the process? I guess. Um, if you know, if a I- virus uh, infects a cell and it changes, it uses the cellular machinery to change the receptors expressed on the membrane to upregulate or downregulate them, and that would prevent, sure. let's say, or if, other it ones if it introduces a resistance gene uh, that helps mm. the cell, you know, repel another virus. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know that specific examples have been developed of that, but it, it makes perfect sense. As we get into this discussion, and we're both thinking more and more about how viruses act according to specific sort of purpose, they're not just randomly bouncing around, that that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Uh, and I, I think it does. Uh, but again, as far as a specific example of that, I'm not sure I know of one. Hmm. Okay. Um, I don't know if you deal with bacteria very much, but um, Absolutely. I guess I'll, I'll make this a little bit more general. But, uh, you know, viruses for bacteria, they, you know, what I've seen, they're called phages. Um, so people have a virome. Bacteria seem to have, I guess I'd call it a phageome. And I've seen examples of like, cholera you know it's not infective to us unless a certain phage enters it and you know i guess gives it a a critical sequence and ability do you think that the the phageome of a bacteria or do you think our virome contribute to our immunity or contribute to a bacteria's immunity do you think that they're at all an integral part of it not just an infectious source yeah well they certainly contribute to bacterial immunity uh, to other viruses um by, in, you know, this is something that becomes a, uh, in the germline of a, um, of a bacteria. They can develop, they can have resistance genes uh, that they incorporate from either other bacteria or that are inserted by viruses. Um, exactly how it works with human cells, uh, I'm not sure what data there is on that, on how viruses can uh, enhance or protect human cells somehow. Uh, you know, I think in, in the laboratory, of course, they're looking at, at that, but uh, I don't know of a naturally a natural example where a viral um, infection or introducing a viral agent actually enhances anything about uh, human cells. Uh, there are theoretical, you know, uh, potential advantages like we've talked about, but in terms of yeah. clinical effect, I don't know. Of Do you think that there's interaction amongst all the players inside of a person, for instance, like the, you know, our somatic cells interact with our virome and our, you know, microbiome and our microbiome and all these players interact? Or do you think there's a, a division and, you know, all our microbial constituents interact and then, I don't know, there's like <laughs> delegates that interact with our uh, our cells only, but it's only the bacteria that do. It seems like they all would. 
Well, it depends on, you know, I think interact. I, I think the reason of the, the, um, the fecal microbiome has become so important is it, it's clear that there are uh, tons of bacteria in our large bowel and uh, they're clearly serving a purpose. One major purpose is to suppress the overgrowth of virulent bacteria. So bacteria have a suppressive effect when everything is working well on bacteria that cause disease. This is one of the theories about inflammatory bowel disease, that it's just an imbalance of the bacterial population. Um, where viruses fit into that, not 100% clear to me, but I think since we have now discussed how viruses can alter the products that bacteria can put out and alter the, the uh, genetics of the bacteria, the viruses may actually interfere with or enhance the ability of a virus of a bacteria to suppress bad bacteria. Um, but, it, you know, it's clear with bacteria that there's a, there's a reason why we have so many of them in our large bowel. And it's not just because there's stasis and overgrowth. It's because they serve a genuine, really important purpose. And just as a sidelight, this has become a concern. Uh, it always has been, but more of a concern with the um, the overuse of antibacterial drugs in young children in particular, where uh, antibiotics can alter the intestinal microflora really for a surprisingly long period of time, maybe placing them at risk for other illnesses yet to be identified that can come from having a distorted intestinal microflora. But as you know, and I think as everybody is recognizing now, there is a, a lot of um, importance to the intestinal microflora and what it does to produce good health and what it can do to produce bad health. Just uh, two more questions real close to the end. Sure. Um, you know, when I think of viruses, let's say they're 50 to 100 nanometers in size, a lot of them, um, the average person is, you know, <laughs> a meter and a half tall and huge over time, over millions of years, thousands of whatever. How, how are there so many successful viral infections of all creatures when the virus is so tiny and a person, for instance, is so huge or a dog or even a bacteria is a lot bigger than a virus. How do they find their targets reliably if they go after a, a specific cell type? Or, you know, how, how could this happen if they're non-motile and they're just passive? Yeah, well, they certainly go after specific cell types for invasion. And you just take the example of the respiratory tract viruses uh, and the GI tract viruses. They're, they're entering the body for a specific target cell. Uh, in the case of influenza, they clearly infect um, bronchial and um, lung pneumatocytes. Uh, that's what they're interested in infecting, and that's how they get it. Uh, that's how they get there. Those viruses can't really enter through the GI tract because of the low gastric pH, but the viruses that do get in and they attack their target cell. So, um, you know, a, a lot of the questions you have, which are excellent questions, um, they sort of uh, get into philosophical speculation, depending on what we really begin, believe the origin of life was and how it has evolved the way it has. You know, sometimes people say that it's too bad Darwin didn't last long enough to really investigate viruses very much. They'd just been discovered when he died um, because he might have contributed a lot in terms of natural selection of viruses and how they, um, you might have oriented our thinking a little bit at least, and how they uh, have developed to attack certain cell types and why that is. Is it because it's the only way they could get in or because they were actually um, genetically evolved to do that in the first place? We don't know. Yeah. And that's my last question is, <clears throat> what role do you see viruses have played in speciation and adaptation and evolution? Well, as we learn more and more about uh, how viruses can interact with the cellular 
genome. It is tempting to think that uh, a lot of vertical transmission has happened. I think it's been estimated that of the human genome, about 10% of it consists of retroviruses that were RNA viruses that reverse transcribed into DNA and inserted into human genetic material. So what are those actually doing now? What do they have to do with human traits, um, with human ev evolution? It's hard to believe they don't have anything to do with it, but it hasn't been worked out what their role has been. But it, it's, you know, the HIV was the first human retrovirus we were aware of, but as viral genetics have become much more sophisticated, it's clear now that retroviruses have been with us um, from the beginning. And, and what exactly they do to human evolution is not it's tempting to think they have a lot to do with human evolution and, um, you know, maybe favorable, maybe not favorable, but uh, they're certainly there and they're there consistently in one genome after another. Mm. Well, Joseph, uh, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your, your insights and your speculation. Uh, where can people find out more about your work and to see what you're doing clinically? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I can send you my, um, my NIH uh, material and it has my publication okay. if you want, I can do that. And, yeah, uh, we'll be glad to uh, post it. And I want listeners that uh, have enjoyed your speculation to, you know, if they want to be able to seek out okay. more that you put out and learn from you. So that's why I asked. You know? All right, terrific. I'll do that. And uh, I see you were uh, interested in setting up something on uh, HIV soon, and I'd be happy to participate in that. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.